Today on Alt Goes Mainstream, we have a guest who is an expert from both traditional financial services world and the crypto world, which has equipped him with the ability to bridge the two worlds and build on-ramps into the crypto economy. Tom Jessup, who heads Fidelity Digital Assets, is an expert in market structure, capital markets, and crypto. There are few who have seen as much as him when it comes to the evolution of market structure. He's an OG fintech investor investing into fintech even before it had that moniker. He has a knack for finding trends before they're big. He did it with fintech, and more recently, he's been on the forefront of another major trend, crypto. He's the president of Fidelity Digital Assets, where he's responsible for helping one of the world's largest asset managers build out a full-service enterprise-grade platform for digital assets. Fidelity has long been a pioneer amongst financial institutions in the world of crypto. They started R&D efforts on crypto in 2014, started mining Bitcoin in 2015, and tested their first wallet and storage solution with employees in 2016. With over $7 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades processed per day, Fidelity's participation in the crypto economy is critical to on-ramp large financial institutions and wealth managers into the space. Tom leads a team that is in large part responsible for making this happen. He was previously the head of corporate business development at Fidelity, where he was responsible for identifying and executing strategic opportunities. Tom joined Fidelity from Chain, a leading provider of enterprise blockchain solutions to global financial institutions. And Tom has previously had an illustrious career at Goldman Sachs, which culminated with a role as global head of technology business development, where he was responsible for investing in and partnering with early stage tech companies across AI and cybersecurity. Tom was also a founding member and senior leader at Goldman Sachs's principal strategic investments team, investing into the likes of Circle Financial, Kensho, Digital Reasoning, and DataFox. Tom and I had a fascinating conversation about how we can take experiences from the evolution of traditional market structure and apply those learnings to crypto market structure and DeFi. Tom is such a smart, thoughtful, savvy investor and company builder, and he's an even better person who treats everyone incredibly well. Thanks, Tom, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. We're going mainstream. Tom, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. I know we've been talking about doing this for a while. It's a uh, pleasure to finally be here. Oh, it's great to have you. From many years ago when you were at Goldman to today, you're now at Fidelity doing this podcast to talk about the, the evolution of the crypto space, which you've been following and been a part of actually for quite some time. But before we get to that, we'd love to go back even further, because I think that your background, whether it was working in market data in the early days of the internet, I think you did some really interesting things in the very early days of the internet at Goldman Sachs, maybe things that people don't know about, or they'd have to go far back into the history books to understand about Goldman when it came to e-commerce in the early 2000s and the, the internet banking world then, to everything you've done at Goldman, to now Fidelity and your time at Chain as well. Would love to hear your background and how you got to running Fidelity's digital assets team today. Yeah, so, so not to go too far back, but I'm going to take you all the way back to when I was in college. I graduated in the late 80s, and 
you and the younger generation will not appreciate this, but the first time I ever set, set eyes on a personal computer was probably a year or two into my career. It was one of these things where, and I was a liberal arts undergrad, I don't have any technical training. I just became fascinated with this idea of the personal computer and everything that it potentially represented. Although at the time, I didn't really realize what it could have represented and all the successive waves of innovation. And so I, early on in my career, I just always thought about how can we use technology to do things better? My first job out of college, I was a fixed income analyst and we were maintaining things in spreadsheets and I built a database. It was a very crude, pre-Microsoft Access type of product. And I thought that was pretty cool. But then where I really started to understand the impact of technology was actually a bit later in the mid-90s. I was uh, working for a company that published investment research electronically. And we did that through Bloomberg and Reuters terminals because that's where the clients were. And for the privilege of using their distribution, we paid 30% of our revenue or something around that to the distributor to basically rent a shelf space on their terminals. And so I started reading about this thing called the internet and the World Wide Web is maybe 96. And we secured a great URL. I don't know who owns it now, but it was www.globalmarkets.com. And we took all of our institutional research, which was being consumed by hedge funds and dealing desks and big banks, and we pushed it onto the internet, not only improving the client experience in terms of how you put all these capabilities together, but doing it with a much higher gross margin to our business than distributing it through these terminals. And I was sort of hooked. And so, quote unquote, I had this e-commerce experience. And when I got to Goldman, uh, Goldman in 2000 was thinking through the implications of technology for their business. So what did we do? We worked on a portal for research distribution. I worked in the team that formed the early stages of what's now known as the electronic trading business. It was just a great experience. And I've always been attracted to this idea of you know, how does technology make things better or different? partly because I was just so taken with it early on in my career. I, I have no other explanation. That's fascinating. So really, it was just as much the technology side of crypto as it was the financial market side, because you have deep expertise in market infrastructure and investing in much of the pipes and plumbings of the traditional markets. What kind of really piqued your interest about crypto? Was it the technology side? Was it the financial services side? Or was it a combination of both? I mean, to be candid, it was really more the macro view. I, I had read an article on Bitcoin and I was immediately taken by things like digital scarcity, 24-7 value transfer, non-sovereign networks, so to speak. I was really taken by more the macro implications of it, which is funny because this was what, in 2014 or 15. So here we are five, six years later, and finally, now many investors are seeing the, the macro implications of a, what a scarce digital asset might do in an era of unprecedented stimulus. But it took me a while to then bridge back to what my day job was, which, as you said, was looking at capital markets infrastructure and investing in trading platforms and exchanges. And that's where I said, boy, there's so much that is antiquated and inefficient on Wall Street. This technology could have pretty far reaching implications. I was never a Bitcoin maximalist or minimalist. I always tried to keep a foot in both camps because I, I believe then and believe now that it, it will, like the internet, it will transform existing businesses. The music business, the media business are all much different today with the internet than they were pre-internet. And I think with blockchain technology, we'll see the development of these new business models the same way that we could see transformation of existing industries. I still maintain that view. And so for my last few years at, at GS, it was very much trying to straddle my personal interest in Bitcoin and native digital assets with my corporate interest, let's call it in, what can this technology do for capital markets? How much were you talking about crypto 
at Goldman in the 2014, 2015 timeframe, were there other people on the trading floor or at the firm who were like, oh, this is kind of interesting? Very, at least to my knowledge, very few. I was sort of like the resident crypto expert, so to speak. I won't name names, but it's really funny. Some of the meetings that I was pulled into with some now stalwarts of the industry back when they were doing their seed raises or series A. And in fact, the CTO of one fairly large uh, crypto company participated on a panel discussion that I moderated. And of course, there's a part of me which was very excited and a part of me which was quite terrified at reaching the limit of my technical knowledge. I'm in my suit and he and the other panelists were wearing t-shirts or whatever. And when we were done, he came over to me, he goes, for a banker, you seem to know a lot about crypto. And I took that as very, very high praise, to be honest. I fought the good fight. I stayed interested. As you know, we made some balance sheet investments in uh, crypto companies, both in the pure crypto side and the enterprise blockchain side. And so it's nice to see that alma mater, as they say, is moving forward in the space. You talk about both the applications of blockchain technology, which again, you invested in, you've helped build a lot of that infrastructure, both at Goldman, at Chain, and now at Fidelity. And then the crypto asset themselves, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or other crypto assets, do you think that you have to believe in both of those things to really believe in the crypto space? Or can you believe that maybe blockchain technology is going to be what's really transformative to the internet or to certain industries and not necessarily believe in crypto assets themselves? Oh, it's a good question. I think you can believe in one and not the other. I'll try to take the perspective of each side. I think if you're a crypto native, you would look at enterprise blockchain and say, why is that needed? It's just another form of enterprise technology. If it's a permission blockchain, it's not a real blockchain. It doesn't address some of the societal benefits and issues that the public blockchains do. It's an inferior application of a superior technology. If you're on the enterprise side, I think what you say is, we already have lots of assets that could benefit from the technology. Many of these assets that exist on blockchain's native digital assets are either unproven or have no intrinsic value or 15 other arguments. There are some people that are absolutists, but I also think you can be a believer in, in both. They just have different call it criteria or challenges in scaling. Obviously, the benefit of a public blockchain is it's, it's a viral scaling. You don't need financial institutions to bring it to people. And one of the challenges you have with scaling enterprise blockchain is in institutional finance, a lot of these market structures are social in nature. You think about a stock exchange. It was founded by a group of folks who were trading under the buttonwood tree on Wall Street in the late 1700s and said, maybe we should standardize the rules of engagement. It never really is about the technology or the capability in as much as it is about a group of institutions or organizations agreeing to work together against a set of standards, technical business or otherwise. And that's always been the challenge in capital markets is that you can always find great technology, but great technology without that incentive structure or that ability to convene organizations socially means that you don't really get any type of network effect. I think you're bringing up some really interesting points about the crypto space as well that would be great to unpack here. One is you have a world of idealistically decentralization, yet mm -hmm. there's also in the middle of that, there's centralized companies like a Coinbase, for example, that is providing that bridge between the centralized world and the decentralized world. But you need that in order to transition people to the crypto economy. But then you also have blockchain technology on the other side, which is just making the existing centralized world better. How do you think about reconciling both of those things, the, the, the aspiration perhaps of the crypto world to 
live in a decentralized world, but the need for traditional financial services firms or the centralized world to apply blockchain technology, but still maybe want to live in the centralized world? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the first question you have to ask about decentralization is what use cases benefit from decentralization? Because for every decentralized crypto protocol, there's a centralized equivalent. So roughly speaking, Bitcoin is a payment mechanism. How is that materially better than some of the tools we use every day to move money around. And I'm not making a value judgment. I'm just saying that's your point of comparison. What is it about decentralization that brings a benefit? Similar example would be, uh, let's take Ethereum. If Ethereum is effectively a distributed computing network, what benefit does Ethereum bring over running workloads at AWS or Azure? Or again, pick your equivalent. These are rough comparisons. The point is, there needs to be a benefit to the decentralization. And those benefits are probably numerous. The ability for a larger number of people to participate in some sort of financial system. There's certainly some applications of decentralized apps. You think about one of, one of my, and I don't know how they're doing now, but early on, I thought that these prediction markets were very interesting because at scale, they do have some predictive ability, but the only, call it centralized uh, exchange we had for prediction markets was shut down by the CFTC. I think it was called Intrade six, Intrade. seven years yeah. ago. So then you have these decentralized protocols. And so that's, that's pretty cool. I think that that's the thing you always have to think about. There's always a centralized equivalent. And the question is, for which audience is one better than the other? I think for the centralized financial institutions, it seems to me that it's not so much a desire to keep things centralized, because I, I think that at some level, of scale, you'd be powerless to do that. No one controls the Bitcoin blockchain. A bunch of banks can't change the rules of the game. So I tend to think that financial institutions will continue to support the assets and products and services they do today, uh, but could act as an entry point for decentralized assets. And I think that's a core thesis that we are pursuing as a business, which is while there may be a cohort of people that want to live in a truly decentralized world, there are probably, I think it's safe to say, an equal number, if not larger number of people that to the extent they see value in these assets or protocols, want to see that value next to the other things that they've invested in. I think you're bringing up a great point around institutionalization in crypto. And it feels like we may have finally hit that moment. Maybe that's happened over the past few years. I think for me, when you joined the crypto industry and a few other senior people from financial services joined the crypto industry, that to me was a huge signal that, okay, there's really something here because you're taking really smart people from traditional industry, or in this case, Wall Street, and joining a new movement. I think you have to take notice of that. When was that moment for you where it hit, okay, there's going to be institutionalization in crypto from traditional financial institutions? I think I always, again, certainly maybe more on the enterprise blockchain because that was more present. It was part of the organization I used to work with and other organizations we did business with. So I think that was always a given that as an enterprise technology or capital markets technology, uh, that would eventually happen. In terms of native digital assets, it was really once I got to Fidelity and started to see some of the demand and interest firsthand, which led us to launch the business based on that sort of premise or hypothesis. And then to be candid, things were going quite well, but it was really when the pandemic hit that we just saw this real acceleration of interest into the space. That's when I, I personally said, okay, we now have this perfect storm, a growing number of smart investors understanding the asset class and the technology uh, to the point where they would consider allocating. And now we have this macro catalyst where anyone in that process has now jumped forward in the queue to say, okay, I think I need to do something now, or this would be a good time to do it. 
I don't know if I would say I was early or whatever, but I think it's been a steady process that's accelerated, let's say, in the past 12 to 15 months. And then with Fidelity, you decided to start with digital asset custody. I, I know you've done other things at Fidelity, and in many respects, particularly for institutions, have been well ahead of your time. But what made the place where you started when you came to Fidelity and said, we're going to build out crypto business, crypto expertise, why did you start where you decided to start with Fidelity? I did take one psychology class in college. Maslow's hierarchy of needs were at the base of that pyramid is a very basic human need to feel appreciated or loved or to feel safe or whatever. With digital assets, that base is custody. Just given how unique the definition of custody is in this asset class versus others, we started with this foundation or bedrock of security and safekeeping. And then moving up the, the triangle, so to speak, then it's liquidity sourcing, liquidity aggregation. Okay, now that you've proven to me that you can keep my assets safe, how do I find liquidity? How can you disambiguate this market structure? What do you mean that end investors open accounts directly on crypto exchanges? Like, where's the broker? How do I know if I'm getting a best price? And so that was the next thing we did, which is trying to bring liquidity to our clients with Fidelity as the counterparty, where they don't need to worry about anything downstream in terms of where we source the liquidity or how we settle trades, but they just know they're dealing with Fidelity's counterparty. And then we'll continue to move up that stack in add products and services while we expand coverage of the assets that we support. The phrase that we use somewhat inelegantly is that we're trying to be a bridge between the old and the new. There are a lot of time-proven business models in traditional finance. And what we're doing is applying some of those things to a new asset class. And Fidelity, fortunately, has a lot of experience. Fidelity has a huge traditional custody business. You're obviously now staking your claim doing that in the crypto custody world. And you also serve both institutions, you serve employers, and you serve individuals. So how do you think about creating crypto offerings for all of those types of end customers that you serve at Fidelity? We started with institutions because we felt that at the time we entered, there wasn't a singular service for institutions. There were stories about the principal of a hedge fund or a family office opening up an account on what was a retail platform, not having some of the controls and, and security around the division of roles on their, their side and who could approve transactions versus initiate them. And so that's where we started. We, we call it an adolescent asset class, just you know, given the recent bout of volatility that we've seen. I think you have to be very careful when you're talking about making these assets widely available to a broad set of investors. So start with institutions, but as the space evolves, we'll see opportunities to bring it to other client segments. That's a really interesting point around making sure investors understand this from an educational perspective. One, how did you think about educating the institution in two ways? One is just on this new asset class, but two... In some senses, this was an asset class that the retailer individual investor actually started investing in earlier than the institution. And there may have been some aspects of the asset class and the volatility that goes along with it, maybe the religion or the movement aspect to this that is just maybe so antithetical to anything we've seen until maybe more recently today with some of the things that's happening with retail traders. How did you go about educating institutions about not just the asset class, but the element of the retail investor in all of that and how that may change the price action of crypto assets themselves? It's a, it's a great question. We sort of kicked this process off after the last peak in 17, which in hindsight is widely regarded as being a almost entirely retail-led phenomenon. So I think it's a good question. When we entered, I don't think we focused that heavily on what is the influence of retail investors in this space save to acknowledge the fact that 
institutions were early and that retail had led called the first wave of adoption. We've become really good at, at trying to explain difficult uh, concepts in frameworks that are familiar to traditional investors. So there's some investors that have basic questions about how the technology works. Why could something like Bitcoin have value? We've answered questions like, should I be buying Bitcoin or Ethereum? And I think the analogy there would be, it's like saying, should I buy bonds or commodities? It's part of the same general fabric of, or, or family of, of asset types, but very different characteristics and fundamental drivers. And that's still a very big part of our focus. But now, as the industry matures, more of the focus is not educating, let's say, the family offices and the hedge funds, but more traditional types of investors that are starting to put a toe in the water. So corporates and others who are um, seeing what's going on and trying to understand if it makes sense for them. On that point, how do you think institutions or firms that are fiduciaries, i.e. managing other people's money, how are they thinking about this? And are they okay with having some exposure to the asset class despite the volatility or despite the fact they may not understand either the retail demand and how retail invest into crypto or the underlying technology itself? Or are they staying on the sidelines because they're saying, you know what, I don't want to invest in something I don't know? Well, that's a big part of it. No fiduciary is in a position to recommend something that they don't understand intuitively themselves. When you then overlay the volatility and other things about it, it's very challenging for someone in that role to say to their client, you should be doing this. So I think what's happening, my guess, is there's a lot of reverse inquiry where clients are demanding this as opposed to it being sold. For certain clients, this could probably be put into what you would otherwise call the alt sleeve or private investment allocation, uh, higher risk return. But I think very little has been done so far in terms of what is the role of Bitcoin, let's say, in a 60-40 portfolio? Should it be 60-38-2, 60-39-1? And I think that's probably, in some ways, the next phase of the maturation of the space where it's less about oh, you should buy this because you've got an expected return basis that's going to go up, up, up. But something like, you know, in small quantities, this actually has a beneficial uh, impact on your portfolio allocation. On that point, do you think there are analogies you can use with more traditional portfolio management that helps the, the traditional investor understand that, where this fits into their portfolio? We've published some research on this, as have others. It's really the risk-adjusted return, the sharp ratio in running portfolio simulations, different constructions. If I allocate a little bit, rebalance quarterly, and I hold the portfolio for four or five years, what does that look like versus holding it for three months? And so that's really a framework that increasing number of investors are starting to think about. And it's probably healthy because they're doing the same with other assets. They've probably done it with gold and other things that wouldn't necessarily constitute, quote unquote, a traditional allocation. Particularly when the, the 40 part of an allocation, the bond part is really yielding zero to negative negative real yields. Well, do you think that we've reached the point where there's an opportunity cost? And this could be for a fiduciary as well. In some ways, maybe more important for a fiduciary if there's an opportunity cost to not have an allocation to crypto in their portfolio. But is that something you believe to be true? I know at, at a MicroStrategy conference, you referenced a survey where I think 95% of the respondents said that they would have an allocation of crypto within five years. So maybe there is some thought process around doing this and feeling like they need to have some sort of exposure to it. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know if it's the feeling that there's an opportunity cost, like I have to do this because if I don't do this, um, given other things going on in my portfolio, I might miss out on something in as much as it could be a recognition that this is a new type of asset class. There are exciting things happening. 
They anticipate further growth. For example, if you had asked someone in the late 90s, would you anticipate having some allocation to internet stocks in five years? My guess is most people would have said yes, even though they really had no idea of would it be Amazon or would it be Google versus Yahoo? They just knew that it was something that was going to transform. And, and so it, it could be a little bit of both. But I don't get the sense that people are saying, if I don't jump on the bandwagon now, I'm going to miss something. I think most institutions or most sophisticated investors don't think that way. Now, there clearly is a class of investors, day traders, opportunistic investors who probably do feel that way. But for the very traditional institutions, it's a methodical process. It's a three-step process. What is it and why should I care about the technology? Do I understand it? If my boss said to me, Tom, explain to me what blockchain is, could I do that? The next step is, okay, well, I understand what it is and what does it mean for my portfolio or for my clients? And then the third step is, okay, great. Check the first two boxes. How do I do this? Where do I buy it? How do I secure it? How do I record keep it? What are the tax implications? Institutions have to go through those three very discrete steps before they do anything. And, and you and I as individuals, like we can just be like, no, I'm just going to buy it right now. Right. Mm -hmm. It sounds like what you're saying is there's at the very least an opportunity cost to not know what is going on in the crypto space yeah. and understanding the what crypto actually means, both from at the protocol layer and at the crypto asset layer. Yeah, well said. That's exactly what I'm saying. And you said it far more succinctly, which is there is an opportunity cost now in not understanding the space. Now, what I was going to say is I think that what we're seeing, and this is observable by anyone, is that the Successive waves of adoption are going to happen faster, happening faster. Four years after the Genesis block, Bitcoin's market cap was at 150 million. Four years after MakerDAO was launched, which is arguably the first DeFi protocol. I mean, what's the number now locked in DeFi protocols? 65, 70 billion dollars. So over the same time period, you've seen just an order of magnitude increase in interest than the first generation, which was was Bitcoin. NFTs, I joke, CryptoKitties, 2017, people were buying these collectible kittens on the Ethereum blockchain and they choked the network. And four years later, you have a piece of art selling at auction for $60 million. Um, so I think that's the opportunity cost, is not understanding this and what it means for society, for capital markets, for whatever. Well, on that point, you mentioned that there are often things that happen a few years before they really take hold, whether it's CryptoKitties or the DeFi and the MakerDAO. And you probably saw something similar in the early days of the internet in the 90s and early 2000s. Has that informed your view at all? And were there things that you saw like, okay, yes, maybe this didn't work? There were internet banks that tried to work in late 90s, 2000s. Obviously, none of those really took hold, uh, but they worked in 2012, 13, 15, 2020. So what, what did you learn from going through that and, and how valuable of an experience was it for you? Whereas many of us, myself included, I, I was a kid and luckily was exposed to the internet, never lived through that from a business perspective yet. We're investing or YOLO in crypto left and right. Yeah, it's interesting. Like you can probably cite corporate examples like AOL was a thing until it wasn't. And now Google owns everything. But for me, what I really learned was that number one, that technology is a very iterative process. So the benefit we have is that we can see the successes and failures of people that have come before us and learn from them, as will the people that come after us, look at what we've done uh, correctly or incorrectly. And that is very additive and creates to the benefit of everybody. The other thing too is I've never seen technology go backwards. So other people can question me on this, but it's not like to 
you know, like think about semiconductors and the fact that there's a theoretical limit to computing power, Moore's law, whatever. People were talking about this 10, 15 years ago, and we're still finding ways to eke out performance out of processors. The internet, remember, I, I was joking, I was giving a speech to a bunch of law school students, and I, I jokingly asked them, does anyone know what a modem is? <laughs> and fortunately for me, there were a few people that did. And you think about a uh, 9600 uh, uh, baud modem versus the fact we're going to have 5G on our phones in the next year or two. You just have to bet on technology eating the world in a way. On that point, do you think we can truly understand and wrap our heads around how big the opportunity is in crypto? Much like many of us have, have underestimated the sheer size of the market in technology, e-commerce, in fintech, any market within technology, we've often, myself included, underestimated the sheer size of it and how big markets can be and therefore how big companies can be. Do you think that it's the same with crypto where we actually can't wrap our heads around how big this opportunity can truly be? People have tried to size the opportunity. What if X percent of existing investment in, in traditional products was allocated to native digital assets? Or what if certain percentage of traditional financial assets were put on blockchains and all the balance sheet and funding costs and other things be released back into the economy. I don't think we really know. I, honestly, I don't. And it's not something that I focus on in my day job, but there's even blockchain applications outside of capital markets and finance, whether it's internet of things or supply chain or what have you. What's going on in the gaming world, gaming space is very interesting. So this, the short answer is I, I don't think we know. I do think we have historical benchmarks around the power of open source technologies like the internet. And that if you have this uh, call it public good, as it were, or these broadly available capabilities, people will find ways to maximize their value or to use them to maximize their own value. Taking the other side of this, do you feel like we've reached the point in crypto where we've reached that tipping point or the point of no return where this is a thing? We can all say that, establish that. And then it goes from here, or are there things that still really worry you about the crypto space? Coming back to my earlier comment, I think we're not going backwards, but there may be a question about how quickly we continue to move forwards. And what are those things? It is everything from uh, consumer understanding and adoption. It is uh, a lot of open questions on the regulatory front. But the one thing that I'm actually quite surprised about, having looked at some of these DeFi protocols, is that when you actually say, boy, wouldn't it be great to like stake or to lend money or lend something through this protocol? User interfaces are almost unintelligible to the average human. And I remember in the early days of experimenting with Bitcoin uh, on the desk at Goldman, and a few of us downloaded a wallet, and we were sending value back and forth. I knew then, I'm saying, boy, this can be challenging. And I said, I don't see this becoming a mainstream payments capability until someone like my mom could use it. I still maintain that user experience is important. I don't think my mom would ever use Bitcoin to buy something, most people won't for reasons that have nothing to do with user experience. But I, I often feel sometimes we lead too much or we did lead too much in the industry with blockchain as being like this, oh, it's on the blockchain. Oh, it's on the internet. You know, I think at the end of the day, if this is done correctly, people won't care. That's not part of the value proposition. Part of the value proposition may be the benefits they get from it. But the fact that it's on a blockchain is not something that is a leading value proposition. I remember once having a discussion with someone in capital markets and saying, boy, you should really do this on the blockchain. And this person said to me, well, I can't do that because the minute I tell my clients that it's on the blockchain, they're going to say, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't know what it is. And I said, why can't you lead with things like better access to liquidity or faster settlement times or 
15 things they care about because they certainly don't care about what technology it runs on. They care about the benefits they're going to get. When you buy something online, you're not questioning whether that company is using AWS or Azure. You could care less. You just want response time. You want inventory. You want the best price. At some point of the evolution of this space, that's where we need to get to for this thing to really take off. Do you think that that has anything to do with the fact that the space in its entirety is more decentralized and therefore like the marketing of crypto as a space? You can, Obviously, there's different companies in there and there are centralized companies in crypto, but do you think that has any piece of it? Whereas Amazon can figure out how to market why AWS makes sense. And, and again, most of us may not know whether, whether or not a company is using AWS as their server, but they still use the, the services that a company provides uh, or contract with them if they're an enterprise. Do you think that has any element in, in, in this where consumers don't necessarily trust it because the space hasn't done a good enough job of marketing what the benefits actually are versus like the fact that it's on this new innovative technology? Yeah, it's a great question. I said another way, there's, there's no one there to market the benefits of the technology. And so I think that's where you need service providers, whether it's a Fidelity or someone already operating in the space that can bring the benefit to the customer and explain it to them in a way that they understand or explain the hard bits in a way that they understand. The other benefit is that social media is a powerful thing. So many people have found out about these protocols and about the technology because they're one degree removed from someone who does know about this on Twitter or Reddit. And as the father of late teen uh, boys, they consume a lot of information from these sources. And quite frankly, a lot of what they've learned about this space and other spaces is through social media. So that's a capability that clearly didn't exist in the early days of the internet, but I think something that probably helps support the virality of people's understanding of what's going on in the space right now. What you're getting at here is the value of community or even extended further religion. I think Jeff Lewis from Bedrock has said that Bitcoin is the first financial asset to be a religion, whether or not you agree with that statement. But how important do you think the value of community is or, or the religiosity around not necessarily just Bitcoin. I know there are people who are Bitcoin maximalists uh, and use social media to to share that view and espouse why they think that's the case. But how important is that in the in building crypto as a space? And does that give it some sort of defensibility or moat that maybe other movements haven't had? It's a great question. Yeah, there is a certain nobility at the heart of this, which is creating a more inclusive, whatever descriptor you want to use, a more inclusive financial system, financial capabilities that are not strictly the domain of a sovereign government. I think there's something somewhat noble at the core of that. And I think that still propels a lot of people in this space. Having said that, the other side of the equation is there are a lot of people that are still unfamiliar with it, would like to benefit from the enabling aspects of the technology probably don't care as much about some of those factors. So I think it's incredibly important to drive these projects in the space to a certain level of feasibility. And then I think you need other things to take over for it to be instantiated more broadly into the economy. At some point, I guess it maybe starts as a religious movement and then becomes something else. I don't know what that other thing is. But to be perfectly candid, it's one aspect of this whole space that I have just been completely fascinated by since even the creation story around Bitcoin and not just Satoshi, but all the other developers that were working together, a lot of them remotely, or even the story of how Ethereum was built. There was a very, you know, without overstating it, a very kind of altruistic, thoughtful thing that they were 
trying to do. And, and here we are 10, 11 years later, and it's given birth to a new asset class, a new form of enabling technology where I don't think we know what it's capable of over the longer term. Was this something that you ever observed in traditional financial markets, whether it was with stocks or companies as well? The only sort of echo would have been, and this is probably a bad analogy, but no, nothing like an open source financial system, let's call it. That's not a term of art. That's just what I'll use to describe what some people might think this is. No, because that's that technology has always been the domain of financial institutions and large enterprise software companies. The only thing that might be somewhat reminiscent, and I'm dating myself, but back at the height of the uh, internet mania, they were, I guess, predating social media, very vibrant investor community on websites like Raging Bull, which I'm not even sure exists anymore. But there was that, that, ex- that passionate excitement, that religiosity around internet stocks and what the internet could do. It was just expressed in a very different way. People posting things on websites. And you're talking hundreds of thousands or small millions of people, not the sort of reach we see today with social media. How do you balance that being at an institution and helping move the crypto space forward, but at the same time, being cognizant of that there's this kind of individual or retail community of people who are so passionate about the space and are investing in crypto assets? I I think personally, it's great to see institutions come into this space because all of these, whether they're alt asset platforms, they undergo an arc of institutionalization. Crypto has undergone an arc of institutionalization, and that has made the space bigger. It's brought more assets to the space. It's legitimized. It's enabled companies as big as Fidelity, which are beacons of the financial services ecosystem to actually use this. And then that gets down to the core of, of this, which and you said this with how do you get your mom to use, whether it's invest or pay, it's trust. Whether it's a decentralized or centralized system, trust is the core of why people would interact with a product or service, particularly when it comes to their money. So how do you reconcile those two things of being an institution that's wading into this space and doing it in a very thoughtful way, but also recognizing that the individual and retail investor has wanted to do this because they maybe want a new financial system. I think the two are complementary. Sometimes they've been posed as being in opposition, as the forces of decentralization against the forces of centralization. And I don't think it has to be that way, because I think ultimately it's an ecosystem. And I think that if you were to view in aggregate financial institutions as potentially being on-ramps to this new asset class, this new technology, these new capabilities... To a group of people, let's say, that are maybe older or less savvy about the technology than some of the digital natives who want to interact directly with these protocols, then that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I think the two have to work together. And I think that as time passes, we will have a strong core of people who are very comfortable dealing directly with these protocols and wanting to do so for a certain set of reasons that are you know, personal to them. And hopefully an equal number, a larger number of participants that will want someone like a Fidelity or a bank to act as their path into the ecosystem. I don't think it's a binary decision. I think both can coexist. And then the third piece of that is the regulators. And and I think you've set up a lobbying group with Square and Coinbase to engage with the regulators about crypto. What in your mind is the regulator's role in all of this? And what do they need to understand about this? It's a great question. So regulators do a number of things. What I focus on, and I think we need to focus on it as an industry, is really shedding light on what are the positive aspects of this. In the late 90s, I think it was actually the early 90s under the Clinton administration, Congress passed a bill that basically afforded uh, a state sales tax moratorium to e-commerce companies. 
so that if they wanted to deliver a package from Washington State to New York, they didn't have to collect New York State sales tax. Now, ostensibly, that was done for really good reasons, because there was acknowledgement that this technology could bring benefits to consumers. It had a you know, a bit of a negative effect later on when states realized that there was a ton of money that they were not seeing in tax revenue. Part of what we want to do is make sure that from a policy standpoint, there's a greater appreciation for what the technology can do for society and for capital markets and other things. And it's not just a, this is baseless speculation or consumes a lot of energy or whatever. And so I think though that really is more of a policy discussion. If we're able to demonstrate some of those policy benefits, then I think the regulation can, can fall in line because it's aligned to some greater outcome. Until that happens, we just continue to educate the regulators on how you can modernize certain rules that, that were established 50, 60, 70 years ago and adapt them for the digital age. Things as simple as what does it mean to be a qualified custodian? Mm-hmm. If you're a fiduciary and you need a qualified custodian to look after you know, your client's assets, and so on and so on and so on. The good news is that the more that we see this getting adopted globally, particularly on CBDCs, because all, you know, all central banks are now very focused on that, it also has the net effect of bringing the policy side of this into the light. How, how much do you think the regulators should focus on the underlying technology and applying that to traditional financial markets versus trying to regulate the crypto asset world and the decentralized or DeFi world? The SEC has passed some rules around special purpose BDs. So they effectively acknowledge that, you know, tokenization of securities is potentially a good thing and delivers client value. So we're going to create effectively a little bit of a safe harbor to do that. When you start talking about how do you regulate everything going on in DeFi, to be honest, I don't have a good answer. There are some bedrock things around anti-money laundering, KYC, things that are like very important to the safety and soundness of the United States and other nations that um, I'd imagine are a top priority in trying to think about that. But it's, it is such a very different model when you can't actually regulate an institution. You can't regulate a corporate entity that acts as the gatekeeper for people to access a certain set of investment products. Or maybe you can. Maybe that's how they do it. Maybe what they realize is that what DeFi represents is kind of like the quote unquote wholesale back-end plumbing for a new type of finance, but it really is where that network hits the investor or the consumer where the regulation happens. But then that creates a lot of issues about how we or anyone as an intermediary can actually monitor what's happening. So it's extremely complicated. And as you can tell, I haven't even begun to think about what happens in, in DeFi, but I do know that the industry can help educate regulators and develop capabilities to bring some of that activity into compliance. And you talk about things like blockchain-based identity or passporting identity or other things, all very important. But then you're starting to bump up against some of the, the more tangible things around privacy and the things that many people are attracted to blockchains uh, for. So it's the bumping the old and the new together, I guess. is You're hitting on so many interesting threads in there. And, and one that I want to pull out is the notion of trust. You talked about this when you were first talking about fidelity, digital assets, and why you started with custody and Maslow's hierarchy of needs and trust and safety and security being at the, at the base layer of that. How do you think that the crypto ecosystem helps, whether it's individuals or institutions, understand and trust this space, whether it's the 
providers in this space, whether it's the protocols or the assets themselves? How do we do that? I think we do a lot. We get a lot of questions and a lot of education on simple question like, why is the Bitcoin blockchain secure? Help me understand. It's very basic knowledge sharing. I think that will carry over into other protocols. That's how we do it. It's really just sharing. We benefit from having many years in the space, even before we launch the business. And so I think we have the ability to share some of that perspective. And it also helps that we look a lot like the clients we talk to. It's like, well, let me tell you how Fidelity was able to do this. Well, Fidelity was mining Bitcoin relatively early on, not maybe at Fidelity Corporate, but there was an understanding of this space from very early days. Yes, as part of the same research effort that gave birth to the uh, the business we now have. You mentioned that your kids are into crypto. So what book would you recommend your kids read to learn about crypto? Oh, that's a hard one. I am reading this book now called The Infinite Machine, um, which is about the creation story for Ethereum. And although it's not a how-to, I think it does give a lot of insight into what these protocols are and what they're meant to do and how they're brought to life. And it, it's kind of a I wouldn't say it's a page turner, but it's a nice read. It's not overly technical. Okay. Uh, and then what is the best way for younger investors to invest into crypto? Good question. There are a lot of apps that these investors already interact with. So it's Robinhood, it's SoFi, it's Square, it's PayPal. That's probably, in my mind, the best place to go because they're already familiar with how the app works. What's the most interesting NFT that you've seen? I think they're all very interesting. I can't pick one. I think all the Beeple stuff is very interesting. His style is very interesting, but obviously a little too pricey for my blood. 69 million for, for a piece of digital art. That's remarkable. You mentioned URLs and domain names way back when. When will we see the first dot crypto domain from a large company or financial institution? Never. Never. Wow. Okay. All right. Final question. I I asked this to everyone on the podcast. What's your favorite or most interesting alt investment? Uh, That I own personally. It could be that you own personally, that you've seen. I'm going to say right now, I think Ethereum is really interesting. With the upgrades to the protocol and all the DeFi interest, I think it'll be fascinating to watch what happens. I think it's also fascinating because a lot of institutions are now focused on it, which goes back to my earlier point about successive waves of interest and adoption. So I think Ethereum is really interesting right now. And this is said by a guy who was looking at Bitcoin and seeing what was going on very early. So that may be some pressing advice. We'll have to timestamp this and see what happens a few years from now. So Tom, thanks for coming on the All Codes Mainstream podcast. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. Good to catch up. Yeah, same here. Thanks for listening to this episode of All Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites. And you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Sidgmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going mainstream.